session today, followed, I think, by a Q&A after, uh, but third uh, presentation, the question of providence and evil. Are we, did I turn it on? All right, maybe I turned it off, and then, okay, see, it was on. I undid it there, work. Good. Let's, um, let me start with uh, just a couple texts in addition to the one that Pastor Dunn has read that frame this question for us, or at least raise the question in our minds of providence and the problem of evil. Lamentations 3.38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Or it could be phrased, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that the evil thing and the good go forth? could render it that way. Bless you. And uh, Exodus 9, verse 12, And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he, that's Pharaoh, did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Uh, And this, of course, very famously comes up again in Romans 9, maybe the classic text of freedom, evil, providence, bringing that all to bear on human culpability and the question of it. So uh, there's no way we don't Get, there are things I don't get to in these notes, but Romans 9 won't be cut to the editing room floor. Uh, we will, we'll try to make sure that we get there. Uh, to our confession one more time, Second London, chapter 5, verse, or, uh, section 4, page 673 in the back of the hymnal. Second London, confession 5, paragraph 4. And we'll read this together and then start to open this up a bit. The almighty, unsearchable wisdom and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in His providence that, he, that His determinate counsel extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions of both angels and men. I'll interrupt it for a second. There's a semicolon, so I'll take the liberty and say, uh, with regard to the scope of his determinate counsel, his decree with which we began, we don't want to say that the evil events, the first fall into sin, and then all the subsequent sins fall outside of the decree, but they fall within it. Now, this is obviously going to raise the question, how could God decree or his counsel include evil without being an evil counsel? That's a question, but we return to the text. And that, he says, uh, with, or the, the writers say, not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerful, powerfully boundeth, and otherwise ordereth and governeth in a manifold dispensation of his most holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness of their acts, this is key, yet so as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth only from the creatures and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. I think the text says as much as Scripture requires us to say, and it says it unflinchingly, meaning it's not trying to soften that feeling of, if you feel some tension here, I want to submit to you that that's natural. Um, There are there's some tension that just needs to stay there because of the mystery of sin itself. And so I'm not here to relieve all tension. I, am, I do want to kind of come at it, though, in certain um, illicit ways of relieving the tension, trying to explain the God, divine providence, human sin problem in ways that either alleviate human culpability or banish divine causality. We don't, we don't want to sort of 
take a little step in the direction of deism in order to make space for evil with God sort of out of the picture. In other words, you know, you want to save God from being culpable for evil, slow walk him out of the picture, deism, and then there can be evil, but the reason then would be, well, God's not there, God's not working, God's, that's not an option. On the other hand, if God is at work, and he's at work and includes in his counsel even the evil that men do, then there's a huge question as to how he does that without himself being what we, as the text says, the author of evil. Or a little different way of putting that, himself the evildoer. And then maybe to throw it back on the question that we had before lunch, would not, if God concurs with all creaturely causes, and some of those causes are causing bad things to happen, then it raises questions as to whether God is morally approving of those actions. This text says he's not morally approving of them. And then whether he is himself culpable for the sin in those actions, that's a challenge. Is everyone feeling that sufficiently? That's a, okay, yes. Um, good. <clears throat> Caveat, there's no way that I, pos- there's no possible way for me to cover all the facets of this question, all of the whatabouts, and I'm not delegitimizing them. Um, I'm just going to say there's no way that I'm going to be able to cover all of those. Moreover, the ones that I do cover, um, probably there still, there's no way that I, as it were, get to the bottom of things. What I really want to do is, get to a place where we can talk about God's concurrence with second causes, even the second causes that are causing evil, and why it is that we don't say, why it is that we deny that God's the authorship of the evil without necessarily taking a small step in the direction of deism. That's, if, if we can achieve that, that will be, that's a big if, but that'll be a success for me um, and for us, I hope. First, we need to lay to rest any doubt about God's concurrence in the production of evil effects by considering the broad and consistent biblical witness to God's providential work in both what we call natural evils uh, and what we call moral evils. And so the first thing I want to do is just maybe lay on you a slight barrage of texts that in a certain sense themselves raise the question. Isaiah 45, 7, we began with this. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Okay? So God creates calamity. So he's the, what you might call that natural evil. Is, he then, is it evil for God to, to cause natural evil? Do you know what I'm after? Earthquakes and floods, and is it, is it evil for him to do that? Uh, Amos 7.1. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, he, that is God, was forming a locust swarm when the spring crops began to sprout. Okay? A swarm of locusts is coming, and we're told that God is mustering the locust, apparently for the purpose of destroying the crops. Amos 9, 5-6, the Lord God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts and all those who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Excuse me. And so in this case, he touches the land so that it melts and all those who dwell in it mourn. And who is the one who melts the earth and causes the earth dwellers to mourn? We're told that God is the one. A little further on, 2 Samuel 24, 
verse 1 and then verse 10. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and it incited David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. That's verse 1. I'm going to pause for a second. There was a command not to number or take a census of the people. I think the indication would be that by taking a census, you would be putting your hope in the number of men as opposed to God. So you take a census in order to assure yourself that you've got people for your purposes. Uh, it would be a sign of it would be a sign of arrogance. I rule over this many people, or I have these resources, and God told them not to take a census. But here it says, the anger of God incited David to say, go number the people. Uh, there's another text, the parallel text says that um, Satan tempted him to it. And so then there's this whole question of agency. Did David do it all of his own accord? Did he do it because of the prompting of Satan? Or did God incite his heart? And I want to just suggest maybe it's not an or, Maybe it's a yes, yes, and yes, and that we need to make some distinctions in how. Two of those sources are evil, David's own perverse heart and Satan who tempts him to sin. But then how do we account for God who incited his heart? Is that, I mean, just putting the text out there. Verse 10, same chapter, 2 Samuel 24, 10. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And critics often point this out. But verse 1 says, God incited him to. And then he says, I've sinned greatly in what I've done, the very thing you incited me to. And then so now the question comes up. Is how do we account for God inciting what is an evil action without God himself doing evil? So what I'm trying to say is the challenge that faces us as Christians is not just simply the result of our theologizing. Do you get what I'm after? Like, well, of course you have this problem because you've reasoned wrongly in this way, that way, and the other about providence. What I want to say is, even if we hadn't had our other two lectures, and even if I had never quoted Thomas Aquinas to you, you'd, you'd still have to just face these verses, these passages, and the challenge that they present just on the face of them. When I say challenge, I don't want to, I don't want to say problem. If there's a problem, it's in us, not in the text. Nevertheless, the text does raise questions in our minds. Um, how we handle the questions, that's ahead of us still. Uh, Amos chapter 3, verse 6. If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Okay. Sometimes, people, sometimes people respond to calamities in the cities and they'll say, and they try to give us comfort and consolation and say, the Lord had nothing to do with it. And the idea is they're trying to protect God from the embarrassment of being involved in something like whatever, you know, whatever uproar or calamity befell the city. Um, you know, so, so they're concerned that you're going to blame God. Well, don't blame God. Why? Now, first of all, I agree with that part. Don't blame God. The, the next line, though, he had nothing to do with it, is a problematic one, just because you have so many texts. I create calamity and chaos. If there's calamity in the city, the Lord has done it, or has not the Lord done it? Uh, Lamentations 2, verse 17, is in response to enemies who are triumphing over God's people. And it says, The Lord has done what He purposed. He has accomplished His word, which He commanded from days of old. He, that's Yahweh, has thrown down without sparing. Listen to this. He has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. Uh, He has exalted the might of your adversaries. Really quick. Um, is the, is the rejoicing of the enemy over the fall of Jerusalem a righteous rejoicing? 
it is, for, it's righteousness, but for them, these are idolaters who've just destroyed the temple, and they're rejoicing over the destruction of God's temple as they trample underfoot the holy city. They're rejoicing, and then the text says, and God caused them to rejoice. Their rejoicing was evil. What do we do with God? Did God cause evil? And then, now here's the challenge. Is there a way to say that God caused evil, but He didn't cause it evilly? It's a word, evilly. I didn't, I've checked. Or maybe I've used it enough times to convince myself it's a word. <laughs> Not sure. Maybe don't check me right now. But at least you know what I mean, right? Can God cause evil non-evilly? Can God bring about chaos and calamity without himself being chaotic or calamitous. You get what I'm after? This is, these, are, these are the challenges, and they're not challenges that are the result of bad theologizing. They're the challenges that are the result of good theologizing, but also of serious text reading as you look at Holy Scripture. Romans 9, 18, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, you know the, ver- you know the, the question that immediately comes up. How then does he still find fault? Uh, either, either it's me or it's him. You know, he hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. How do we account for that? And then is Pharaoh still to blame? Finally, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 speaks about, uh, in the earlier verses in that passage, 1 Peter 2, talks about the stone that was the precious cornerstone in whom we are being built up into a holy house. But the same stone that is the cornerstone of the living temple of God is for others the stone of stumbling, so he can be the cornerstone for those who, who, he's precious to those who believe, and he's a scandal to those who don't. And then we're told, a scandal means a stumbling block, and then we're told that the stumblers themselves, it's not just that God places a stone of stumbling before them, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, but then the text goes on to say that God himself appoints, or the word could also be places the stumblers. So watch this, First um, Peter 2, 7 and 8. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then it says, they stumble because they disobey the word. It's the next line. And I don't know about you, uh, and I'm not asking you to like, go back and check Pastor Dunn on this. Um, and I'm not thinking of Pastor Dunn when I say this, but I have heard this text preached and it's this last little line that I will say is the most theologically challenging. And I have heard the sermon preached and not a mention. Was, it was read in the opening of the sermon and then not a word was said about it. Listen to this. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Like that. I'm just going to say, that's the one everyone's waiting to hear about. Well, they want to know how Christ is a precious cornerstone, maybe most of all. But this... The theological disturbance comes with that last little line. Uh, And when it says destined to do, the question is destined by whom? Uh, And it's not a middle tense where they act upon themselves. It's a passive tense. And so it's not self-destined. In other words, it's actually the same tense tense as the one who placed. So the placement of the stone is God. He's the one who places the stone. And then the placers of the stumblers is also the same one. He places the stone, but he places the stumblers. And we're actually told that Christ was appointed, appointed to be, this is uh, the words of Simeon, to marry. Jesus is eight days old. She brings him to the temple to, to dedicate him. 
And he says that this one has been appointed. You remember this? And by the way, it's the same word. For the longest time I stumbled, no pun intended, over this word, stumbled. He was appointed, tithemi is the word in, in Greek, and it's a different word. The different passages seem to be using completely different words, and I found out that, they actually have, that they're actually wildly various forms of the exact same Greek word. Not same cognate, same word. And so Simeon says, this one is appointed for the fall and the rise. Not appointed just for the rise of many in Israel, but for the fall of many in Israel. So Jesus was appointed to be the stone of stumbling, then the rock of offense, and then also to be the precious cornerstone. But then, the, then Peter uses the same word that Simeon uses talking to Mary and Joseph. And he says, not only did he place the stone, but he also placed the stumblers. Are you get at this? So God didn't just make the fall possible. It seems like he also appointed the stumblers to stumble. And then we can go back to Romans 9. That question, well, we'll be careful how you ask this question. Why then does he still find fault for who resists his will? Romans 9 is not the only passage in the Bible that might raise that question in your mind. I would submit that uh, 1 Peter 2 verse 8 might also raise the question in your mind. I'm trying to stir up the question right now in your mind, just to keep you curious enough after lunch to stay with some discussion of this. Um, good. We'll leave it with that. Should be clear, and I'm going to stick a little closer to my notes in this session, only because this is, it's easier for me to get lost in this one because it's so difficult. It should be clear why our confession says that God does not merely order things by bare permission, that's what it says, but wisely and powerfully binds and otherwise orders and governs in a manifold dispensation. That's the language of the confession. That he doesn't just say, he doesn't just let things happen, he hardens hearts and places stumblers. It's a little bit more active, it would seem, than just letting so whatever to make of these passages, we should not conclude that in bringing about evil, God himself does evil. Now, at this point, I need to sort of make the argument for that. I'm asserting it at this point, but I'm asserting it the way that Romans 9 does. Um, you know, before the twins had done good or evil so that the purpose of election would stand, he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Uh, and then he says in uh, Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? Because you know you want to say something, Right? And what you want to say is, no fair. That's what you want. To, maybe you have a different way of saying it. You don't use that silly voice. Um, no fair. This isn't, uh, he says, what shall we say then? And then the first thing he's, before he discusses it in the following verses, 15 and following, he says, is there any injustice with God? And then the very, and then he, and this is very seldom, but he actually answers the rhetorical question, which is kind of rare in the Bible. Usually you're you are left to answer the rhetorical question, and it's self-evident, but he answers it. May it never be. It's oath language. May it never be. And so before he even starts explaining how, or even entertaining the question a little downstream of this, he starts with, the Lord of all the, Lord of all the earth will do right. There is no injustice with God. He does have a hand in evil, but he, his hand in evil is not evil. Do you get what I'm after? He is not doing evil when he purposes and, and makes it such that evil events come about. There's no injustice with him. May it never be. But that doesn't make all the questions suddenly disappear in your head, I think. At least they don't suddenly go away from my head. Nor do they go away from the text of Scripture. And we'll come back to Romans 9. But Romans 9 doesn't say end of discussion. 
it allows the discussion to go on until the interrogation of God gets out of hand, which is starts to imply that he is, in fact, unjust. And then we get the, who are you, O man? The thing we made will not say to the one who made it. But let's wait until we... Let's, let's come toward that a little bit later. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Uh, Genesis 18.25 says this. Bavink, uh, illustrating this, says, Just as a father forbids a child to use a sharp knife, though he himself uses it without any ill results, so God forbids us rational creatures to commit the sin that he himself can and does use as a means for glorifying his name. The illustration is not, again, making all your questions disappear, but I I think it's at at least it's a help illustratively to say, when my children were little, they would watch these PBS uh, uh, Curious George cartoons, and Curious George is doing all sorts of curious things. And uh, some of them would be deadly if you tried them. And then at the end, PBS felt the need to say, George is a monkey, and he can do things you can't do. It's like they didn't want kids like, trying to walk on the power lines or things like that. Um, so they're, you know, it's a little, they're, they're covering themselves legally, I guess. Um, well, I want to say um, God is the author and maker of all, and he can do things that you can't do. And I want to say in this particular case, like intend to use evil for good ends without incurring moral stain on himself. Now, is there anything more we can say about it, or is this just some sort of thing we don't understand? I'm sure we don't understand or comprehend it fully, but there are some things perhaps that we should say about it. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God. May it never be. So let's start there. God is not the author of evil. If by author of evil, you mean himself a doer of evil. All right. At this point, I think we need to ask a question before we go further, which is, what is evil? Before we ask about, is God the author of it? Uh, We should say what it, that is evil, is. And when we get to understand what it is, so far as we might be able to understand it, we might be in a better position to start describing authors. Like I find people want to say, God's not the author of evil, but then they're really fuzzy on what we mean by evil. So let's, let's sharpen that up a little bit and talk about the nature of evil for a few moments. If we're to rightly conceive God's providence in the occurrence of evil, natural or moral, it's necessary that we characterize it correctly. A misstep at this point can lead to lots of other steps downstream of it. So what then is evil? Uh, very simply, evil is the absence of good where good ought to be. Evil is the absence of good where good naturally ought to be. Um, it's not just the absence of good. It's the absence of good that ought to be. So we can talk about all sorts of goods that are absent, just a mere negation, that don't necessarily entail evil. It's a privation of good. And we do need this word in our vocabulary, privation. It's a privation of good. When something's deprived, something is taken away that belongs to a thing. So a privation is, the, is the, what results, the loss of a good. It's a deprivation. The privation is a failure to hit the mark. It's not a substantial thing that exists in its own right. Evil is always, um, I'll use a technical term, an accidental state of being. By accidental, I don't mean not intended or whatever by God. I just mean it's actually something that exists only, particularly moral evil, let's stay with that. It only exists in the thing that is affected by it. So the evil doesn't exist in its own right. 
Evil can only exist where there is good to diminish. Good can exist without evil, but evil can't exist without good because what evil is is a deprivation of the good. In other words, you need the good for the, for the evil just to be there. Um, Bobbink again. Sin is a no thing. It can only be a privation or corruption of the good. Sin is a defect, a deprivation, an absence of good or a weakness, imbalance, just as blindness is a deprivation of sight. Now, when we say this, and I've used this illustration uh, before with some of you perhaps, um, I can, I can say with regard to this water bottle in my hand that it is an unseeing water bottle. Unseeing, that is to say, it's not looking at you right now. Okay, right? Um, but if I were unseeing, that is no pun intended again, I, me, this one, were unseeing, you wouldn't just say he's unseeing, you have a different word for it, you'd say he is blind, Blindness is a deprivation of sight in things that naturally ought to see, whereas this isn't blind because even though it's unseeing, it's not naturally good that water bottles see, if you take my point. So it's, we don't want to say the, uh, evil is just the absence of good. That's, no, that wouldn't be quite enough because the absent, like seeing is a good and it's not here in the bottle. Is that evil for the bottle? No, because it's not naturally good for the bottle. For the bottle to be what it ought to be as a bottle, seeing is not something it ought naturally to do. Whereas for me as a human, seeing is a natural good. Uh, so it's the failure, it's the absence of good where good ought to be. This failure can be one of commission insofar as one aims at a good in an illegitimate and idolatrous way. It can be a failure of omission insofar as one neglects to seek to do the good that is required of him or her. Both are ways of missing the mark. One is aiming at the mark badly. The other one is failing to aim at the mark at all. Both of those are privations of good, failures. Uh, As far as the origin of sin, uh, there's a sense in which it is a riddle, a mystery. We're told in 1 John that sin is lawlessness. And so we want to be careful not to give lawful accounts of sin. This would give the impression that sin follows by some natural causal principle. As soon as you can give a reasonable account of sin, then it's not sin you're talking about anymore because sin isn't reasonable. In fact, it's unreasonable. It is a kind of madness. As soon as we give a law-like necessitarian account of sin, sin happened because necessarily you know, fill in the blank, then you're making sin an inevitable feature of nature itself. And then you probably could blame God for it. You get what I'm after? Um, We don't want to say that sin is naturally necessary. We don't want to say that it is in any way naturally inevitable. Otherwise, sin would be technically lawful because there would be some natural causal principle that made good sense of sin. If your account of sin makes good sense of sin, you're probably doing it wrong. Just a suggestion. If, like, if at a certain point, sin totally makes sense, you know, sin never totally makes sense. It always is madness. It always is unnatural. You know what I'm after? It's always not the way things should be by nature. It's always a corruption of nature. 
Does this make sense? It's a deprivation of good nature. So we don't want to make sin natural. Now, it feels, it simulates nature because nature really just means inborn. And so you are born dead in your trespasses and sins. And as much as you are born with it and, nat- and you are naturally bent. But what you don't mean is the good of my nature is naturally toward evil. What you actually mean is the good of my nature is bent from its very inception and sin did my mother conceive me, Psalm 51. But we don't want to make sin natural. Sin is always the deprivation of nature, even if it's depriving you from the very instant of your conception. I just want to be careful and say, it's not the way things should be. And when I say should, I mean by nature, not the way things should be. In which case, then, we shouldn't point to nature and find some necessary cause of sin. That would be to reduce sin to a natural law-like principle, and sin is lawlessness. So if you've ever felt this question, R.C. Sproul used to say that he'd get letters every, few letters every year, and somebody had just discovered, you know, the reason for sin. Now, we can give an account of sin's beginnings, both with regard to angelic rebellion and human rebellion. We can, we can describe the beginnings of sin. But as soon as somebody finds an explanation for sin, Sproul used to say, before I even read the letter, I knew that they didn't. Because sin is lawlessness. And if you're going to give me a law-like explanation of sin, we're not talking about sin anymore. Um, There's a certain kind of madness that just needs to sit there. As soon as it, like, totally makes sense, you're not even talking about sin anymore. You might just be talking about something like, you're like, well, what do you mean? Like, natural laws can be unpleasant. Like, gravity is sometimes unpleasant, particularly when you stumble over a stone and then gravity takes hold and down you go. Like, you may not like sin, but is sin reducible, like the law of gravity, to some natural causal principle? I think we need to be very careful of this. Sin is, sin is always an unnatural deviation and deprivation of the good of nature. Um, Bavink, we must be satisfied with a straightforward account of Scripture. The possibility of sin is given with creation, but the fall is essentially distinct from it. We don't want to say, well, why do we sin? To err is human. Mm-mm. To, to err is, humans, is human under the curse. Do you know what I'm after? In other words, to, to, to be, to, you know, well, why do you sin? Because I'm human. That's not sufficient. Because I, I know of at least one human who didn't. So then you can't say, well, it's because I'm human. Well, he's just as much human as you and I, and he's wholly blameless and undefiled. So you can't say, it's inevitable that human nature will sin, otherwise the author of human nature would be the author of sin. We want to be careful of that. Sin was brought into being by the will of the creature. It does not belong to the essential being of creation, but came by way of disobedience. It is unlawfully there, but its existence is no mistake. To the extent that it clearly falls within God's purpose and will, we could say that up to a point it had to be there, but then it had to be there as something that he means naturally ought not to be there and had no right to exist. Uh, Briefly then, in what exactly does evil or evil intent consist? What What is it? It's a difficult question inasmuch as pure evil never exists in its own right. Uh, earlier this year, I was driving in the car, and I, I mentioned, I asked my son, uh, is the devil pure evil? And his answer, of course he is, Dad, which, by the way, like, I t- completely sympathize with that answer. It's a little bit difficult in as much as the devil is, ha- always has been, and remains the creature of God who lives, are you ready for this? Because this, this troubles us, who lives, moves, and has his being in and from God, Rome, Acts 17.28 is not a description of the Christian life. It's a description of the created life. Okay? That's why Paul can quote it to pagans, and it counts for them too. 
so the devil has, well, what does the devil have from God? What good gifts does the devil have from God? Existence, life, movement. You get what I'm after? It's not, in other words, we don't want to sort of like suddenly become deists when we start talking about the devil. You know what I mean? Slow walking God out of the picture so he doesn't get <laughs> impugned. But this is a difficult... So is the devil pure evil? No, in a sense, because if the devil's evil at all, which is, of course, he's the most evil thing, but it's because of the goodness that is being so thoroughly deprived that you want to say he's pure evil. But here's the thing. Pure evil can't exist without a good host. Does that make sense? It lives parasitically on the good. What's the good in the devil that evil's living on? The good of his created nature. The good of whatever gift of being God has conferred upon him and continues to confer upon him. Um, That's where the deprivation is going on. Sin, we want to be careful, and this, this, this is maybe some of the most difficult, is not reducible to the agents or the actions by which it is committed. Bobbing says it this way, fallen angels and humans, fallen humans, as creatures are good and remain good and exist from moment to moment only by, in, and for God. So I did, I did actually pull in Bobbing on my side in the discussion with my son. I said, well, Bobbing says, <laughs> fallen angels are still good. Good enough to play host to the sin that is corrupting them morally. So does an angel receive its movement, a fallen one, from God? Yeah, we do, because we, what we don't want to do is we don't want to start saying that angels move in and of themselves in a way where they don't depend upon God because we don't want something in the world that exists or moves independent of God's causal action. Otherwise, you do get into a kind of cosmological... Do, you get into what, for Augustine, was Manichaeism, sort of good God, bad God, war stuff, where you have these competing causes. Uh, God is the cause of the being of even the sinful creatures. I mean, even now, he doesn't step out of the picture. Otherwise, you do step into some kind of deism to kind of make yourself feel better, and we want to be careful of that. Back to Bobbing. Fallen angels are good to the extent that they're creatures. Sin has any power to do anything with and by the means of the powers and gifts that are God-given. So, we was talking to someone on the break. The breath by which someone blasphemes God is the gift of God. I mean, this is also what makes it so egregious, so offensive. The power and the strength by which you carry out evil designs and move about in all of your nefarious ways is also the gift of God. This is, this is why we're talking about we're abusing the gifts of God as opposed to use is put them into the service for which they morally ought to be. Abuse is to take them and use them for untoward or sinful purposes. So the breath by which the blasphemer blasphemes, the gift of God. Are we going to is God the author of the blasphemy? No. Is God the author of the breath that blasphemes? Yes. And so here's where we're going to, I tell you this is subtle at this point. This is where we need to make the distinction. All the gifts of existence and movement by which sin takes place are as such, not as, used, not as abused, but as such, good. Breath is good. From Him we receive life, breath, and all things. The fact that some men, by sin of omission, refuse to put that breath into the service of telling His glory is sinful. The fact that some men take that breath and put it into the service of positively blaspheming the divine name is sinful more. 
But we can't say the evil lies in the breath. Does that make sense? It's not, it's not in the gifts God gives. It's in the failure, the lack of good form in those gifts that lies the sin. And this, this is where it gets very, very difficult. Uh, Bobbing says we just should distinguish the, the form from the matter, like the difficulty of distinguishing the heat from the stove, if you have one of those wood stoves. Um, you can't reduce the, the heat to the, to the metal, and you can't reduce the metal to the heat because you understand that that metal might be there when the heat goes out of it, and then you can touch it. So that there is a distinction, but when the heat and the metal are there together, you can, they're almost indistinguishable. You can't go up to the stove and say, you know, someone says, don't touch, it's going to burn. Oh, don't worry, I'm just going to touch the metal. <laughs> you can't touch the metal without touching the heat, but you also can't say the metal is the heat. Mm-hmm. Do you get what I'm after? Sin is like this. The, the matter of sin, the movements, the actions, the breath that tells the lies, the ability for the will to conceive goods and intend and move, and these are all, this is all the matter. The matter is all good because the matter is all from him, through him, to him, in him. We live, move, and have our being. It's not, it's not, what, it's not in the matter of sin. It's in the form of sin, the misuse of the matter, not in the matter as such. And this gets, this, gets very, this gets very... So where is sin? Sin is not even necessarily reducible to the physiological actions by which you see sinful things being committed. I've used this illustration before in Sunday school here and other classes. It's, it's worth revisiting, and I'll just try to make it memorable. Um, I'm going to make it memorable, but it's, it's post-lunch, so I think I can do this. Um, a man takes a knife and with will and intent plunges the knife into the chest of another man so as to take his life. God, that's it. I'll say that, that much about it. Intent, all the actions, is, has a murder occurred? Or do we know? Do you, do you feel like you want more information about, you want to know some more circumstances? Because there's a sense in which it depends. A killing has occurred. That's just a physic. That's a statement. That's not a moral statement. A killing has occurred. That's just a statement about a physiological event of, that's quite gruesome and unfortunate. But a murder is actually a moral statement about the killing. You know what I'm after? So there can be a killing, but is it a murder for which you're culpable um, as a moral sin? And it depends. Uh, it depends on whether the man who was killed presented a clear, present, mortal danger for which the use of lethal means of the one who killed him to protect his own life or those entrusted to his care was reasonably necessary. And if you can make that case, if you can say, I bore no ill will toward my fellow man, even as I took his life, I bore him no personal sinful malice, but I acted with reasonable force, given a reasonable threat, uh, a court of law is not going to find you guilty of murder. They might say a killing happened. They might even say you're the one who did the killing, but probably they'll clean the knife and send it back to you. Different scenario, you do it because he's got $100 in his pocket and you'd like to have it in your pocket and you know that he's not going to give it to you under any prearranged condition. Okay? Like I always ask my students, is it, is it wrong for me to want, uh, to want the university's money to become my money? I don't mind going on the record and saying, I do. I want the university's money to be mine. 
It's not covetousness per se, only if I wanted it out of sinful discontent or if I wanted to achieve it by illicit means. But if we can sit down and come to terms, a contract, the university says, well, you know, you want my money and we'd like to give it to you, but you've got something we'd like from you. Why don't you sell us some labor? We'll give you some dollars. We agree on how much. And has anyone abused anyone? I wanted what belonged to someone else. Is that sin? No, that's why kids go around and offer to mow your lawn, because they want your dollars. And the reason you say, well, I'm not just going to give it to you, because you want your lawn mowed, and you want something that the other one can give you. Um, And there are licit, that is lawful ways to go about getting that, but there are also illicit ways to go about getting it. Uh, Here's this knife, give it to me now, or else. You know, that kind of... So the question is, I want to complicate the moral question for you sufficiently to say, we cannot reduce the sin to simply the physiological movements that in a certain sense house the sin. In Him we live, move, and have our being. The movement of grabbing the knife, clutching it in fingers, the health by which to even hold it in the strength, the ability to wield the knife to such terrible effect. I mean, sometimes just this will help perk us up after lunch. They say, you know, with the kind of... If it was too pleasant, then you just sort of like lose the... So this is unpleasant. Uh, all of this is from God. The breath you draw, the strength you have, the ability to form a plan of action and to carry it out successfully. Where did it, w- at what point was God sort of causally not involved in the picture? Do you, get, do you get what I'm after? So then you say, well then, so we want to be careful not to reduce sin to, now you may say, well that's sinful. But the sin is not in the actions per se. Those sins, if that is in fact murder, those sins are actually just a register of, where the, of the sin, which is actually in my heart. Uh, Boving says, the will is sin's showplace. Like that's the, it's a failure to love my fellow man as I ought, and maybe other, several other moral failures as well that kind of are baked into that scenario. And what you're actually, and in fact, this is why in a court of law we try to prove things like intent. You could kill someone, but then they're not going to know whether to call it murder or manslaughter until they can establish intent or purpose. And you could say involuntary manslaughter or voluntary manslaughter, uh, both of them are different levels of intentional negligence that you're trying to establish. Nobody's questioning whether the physiological event, the unfortunate one in which someone lost his life, was due to you. The question is how much your will is involved in it. This is what you're, I mean, this is the difficulty of, this is why the procedures take so long. Um, Because if it's just a matter of the facts, now we've got the cameras everywhere and we could just, we could see what happened. But, we, but just seeing what happened isn't enough to tell you the moral story. It only tells you the physiological register. So that, this is, I'm just trying to make this a little bit more complicated for you. What is sin then? This is the, what the Westminster Catechism, or a larger catechism, shorter catechism says. Sin is any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. Or 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. It's the lack of goodwill. Now I'm going to pick, make it moral. It's the lack of goodwill where goodwill ought to be. And the lack of goodwill could be willing something good to the neglect of other goods, or it could be willing something, or it could be failure to will the good that you ought, a commission or an omission. Um, let's get to authorship now. So what does it mean to be the author of evil? If God is the author of our movements, even the movements that we would say, that's an evil action, 
but it's the, the evil of the action is not reducible to the action as such. It must come down to the heart. Do you get what I'm after? It, because this is like, for, for instance, like, a, like a, a, a fallen angel, for instance, doesn't grab a knife and plunge it into anyone's, you know, in other words, doesn't operate this way because just his nature doesn't allow for that, even though they breathe out murders from the beginning. Um, so murder is an issue of the heart, not just simply the means by which it's carried out. And the means by which it's carried out could be, in an unfortunate circumstance, legitimately carried out with different circumstances. This, is, this, I mean, this goes into just war theory, but I'll leave that to the side. Um, what constitutes authorship? We say that God is not the author of evil. This is a Christian commonplace. Yet we might wonder how this is so if God decrees all things, works them after the counsel of his will, and concurs with all second causes as their primary and superior cause. I mean, at what point am I doing evil and God not doing evil, and then have I suddenly attributed a little bit of autonomy to myself? That's the, that's the challenge. And if sin only exists because God willed it to have a place in his perfect plan, then how is he not the author of evil? Let's talk a little bit about how the authorship is established. One way in which theologians have sought to avoid attributing authorship of sin to God is by defining authorship in the narrow sense of a formal causality. And so in this respect, we might say that God is the efficient cause of the creature's actions as movement, but not the formal cause of the sinfulness in that action. Without God concurring, you don't lift a knife, you don't raise it over your head, you don't rush at a man, you get what I'm after, all this is from him, through him, and to him. So isn't my sin also from him, through him, and to him in the same sense? And here we need to be careful and say, not necessarily. Bobbing puts the defense this way. But because the primary cause and the secondary cause are not identical and they differ essentially... The effect and the product are in reality totally the effect and product of two causes, to be sure, but formally they're the effect and the product of the secondary cause. So he illustrates it this way. Wood burns, and it is God alone who makes it burn, but the burning process may not be formally attributed to God, but must be attributed to the wood as subject. So we could say God causes wood to burn, but we wouldn't say that God burns up. What I'm after? Um, the, God is not, I mean, the wood burns. It supplies the material fuel. Further, he connects the point to sin. Human persons, this is Bobbing again, speak, act, and believe, and it is God alone who supplies to the sinner all the vitality and strength he or she needs for the commission of sin. Nevertheless, the subject and author of sin is not God but the human being. So here's the question. Um, and we have texts like this, um, that Christ was crucified at the hands of godless men according to the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, uh, Acts 2, verse 23, or Acts 4, that he, was hand, that he was delivered over uh, by the nations, by the Jewish people, by Herod and Pontius Pilate, according to the predetermined plan of God. So the predetermined plan of God includes, it would seem, even the most heinous act ever perpetrated. Why not authorship? Moral evil follows from a lack of a form of goodness in the subject's will where such a good form is morally expected of him. And the lack of good form is precisely, this is key, a lack in the creature, not a lack in God. So the lack, because that's what we're after with this privation account, the lack of good that corrupts morally is not a lack in God, it's a lack in the creature. Now, I know people, some will say, well, it's a lack in God because he could have put goodwill there where goodwill was not there resulting in corruption. But that, that actually has a hidden premise in it, which is, 
God is naturally obligated to give the best wills and intentions to all volitional creatures. But you would have to prove, do you get what I'm after? This is key. You would have to prove that premise. And that's a, I submit you won't be able to. Um, You might want that premise to be true. God has to give all the good gifts and all the graces that he requires of his creatures to his creatures. God cannot demand what he does not also give. That would be, that's a, but that's a, that's a, that's a big assumption. You think of uh, Augustine's prayer, Lord, give what you command or, or command what you will and give what you command. And he doesn't say, therefore, you must give what you command. He, he, it's a request. It's a petition. God says, God commands you to repent and believe. Is he thereby obligated to give you the gift of repentance and belief? You get what I'm after? If, if, you, if you're working on the assumption, God is obligated to give all the, all the best gifts to all creatures possibly receivable by them, uh, then you might think that God's the author of evil because he's not doing what he should do. But that's, but that's actually what is being debated here. Is God obligated to give those gifts? A little further on. It would only be a privation or evil in God if God were under natural obligation to move the will of every creature to every good required of it. And I want to submit, and we'll come to a text in a moment, that God is under no such obligation. Now, where there is good, it's because God makes it to be. And where there's a lack of good, we could say that God did not efficiently will good to be there. But this is why he's not the author of the evil, because what you're actually saying evil is, is the absence of good where good ought to be, which is exactly something God didn't cause. Do you, do you get what I'm at? You can't say, well, he, he authored evil. Uh, there's not a something there that he, that he authored. Uh, I think Aquinas says he doesn't insert malice into the will. As if, you know, you were going along happily and then God suddenly inserts malice. In not placing the form of moral good required of a creature in the creature's will, we may say that God causes the evil outcome to result, but he's not the author of it for at least two reasons. And I'll just be, this is the, this is the, the dense part of this. First, it's not from God's lack of good form, that would be sin in God, absence of good where good ought to be in God. It's not from God's lack of good form that the evil thing results, but from the lack of good form in the creature. The creature's deformity alone provides the formal reason for the cause or uh, for the evil of an action. In other words, where is the lack in the lack of goodwill where goodwill ought to be? In us, in certain angels and in all humans except one. We might think of this as a formal cause in a negative mode, formally not causing what you should, which is goodwill. Second, since since divine non-determination does not result in any term of production, there's nothing evil positively produced by God when he withholds any form of good from the creature's will or action. So what's God making when someone is made evil? Nothing. Do you get what I'm at? He's not. He's not making even the will. He's not making something be there. He's not making good. Does this make, does this make sense? He's not making good. This is a long passage from Norton. As often as the will does not will, God hath not determined it to will. So I think everyone grants it. If the will doesn't will things, then God hasn't determined it to will. Because if He did determine it to will, it would will. He's at work in you to will and to work. 
The non-determination or the suspension of determination of God is the previous, he calls it the antecedentious cause in respect of God. He says this cause cannot be positive. This isn't what God's causing. This is what should be morally that God isn't causing. That's so moving on a little further. A positive cause cannot be terminated in a non-being, such as man's not willing, like not willing the good. It must therefore, he says, be suspensive. That is to say, it's not, a, it's not a making evil, it's a withholding good that results in the depredation of the nature of the thing. The challenge is whether God is obligated to give that good without which the creature is morally or physiologically corrupted. I think that's, where the, I think that's probably where the question comes. Is God obligated to give every good required of every creature to the creature? Is there a natural necessity that requires him to do that? A little further from Norton. The suspension or withholding of the influence of God without any positive action suffices to, I mean, if God did this, it would suffice to the annihilation of the creature. If he withheld enough goods, you wouldn't even be. If he withholds the good of goodwill, what will happen? Moral corruption will happen. Will God have inserted malice? No, he will have withheld good. Is God then the author of evil? And he would say, no, because God's not authoring anything. And you would say, well, whence the evil? It's the absence of good where good ought to be. Where is the absence? It's in the creature, not in God. Unless you think God is morally obligated to give every good to every creature that he requires of the creature. And that's the, again, I think that's the the challenge. Obviously, the entire argument only works if God is not the author, uh, if God is not the author of sin and only works on, the assumption of the, or works on the assumption that God is not naturally required to give every requisite moral good to every creature, even if he requires it uh, from the creatures uh, by command or precept. So this is, this is the challenge. Is, so I'm going to put another text in here. Jesus gives a parable of workers who go out to work in the field. Uh, and he says, for a denarius, and some guys start at the break of dawn, and then at noon he goes and he hires some more workers for a denarius, and they only work half a day. And then an hour before the whistle blows, he goes and he hires another group, and he pays them for a denarius. And at the end of the day, they all come to be paid, and they, re- they, they perceive that those who worked a little received just as much as those who worked long, hard hours. And you remember the response of those who worked the long, hard hours? N- no fair. No fair. I worked harder. You owe me more. And you remember the response of the landowner? Do I not have the right to do what I please with what is my own? And if I want to give more to one and less to another, I'm free to do so. There's the, this, is, this is, now we're going to get to the question of God's rights. God's rights. Because that's actually the whole question we're already, we've already introduced it in different terms. Is God obligated? That's a right. Is God morally obligated to give every good that He requires of every creature, or is it within His prerogative to withhold moral goods? And by moral goods, I mean the form of goodwill, where goodwill should be. Is He free to withhold that? Or is He obligated to make every creature as morally good as it can possibly be? Do you get what I'm after? And then if you, if you take that premise... You're going to have to say, you're going to have to explain why God failed. But there aren't verses to help you with that, I think. Um, Well, God failed, but it's okay. He tried, you know. I know evil happened in the city, but don't worry, God had nothing to do with it. Those kind of explanations, the ones that leave you feeling like deism, the absence of God, the disappearance of God is not going to make me feel better about God. Okay? 
Well, you think, well, it's the disappearance of God or God's doing evil stuff or God's not doing what he should do. And then that's, maybe we should let the question be there, what should he do? What does, or maybe the question is, what does he owe the creature? What does he owe the creature? Um, that's a challenge. If he makes the creature, is he then, by some law of necessity, immediately obliged? Do you get what I'm after? As soon as the creature has anything from God, and you know how this is with us? As soon as somebody gives you something freely and then does it again and again, you know, like the next breath you draw and then the one after that and then the one after that, and you start to, and suddenly you start to feel, what if God says, breath number 822 is going to be the last one. I'm not giving 823. Are you feeling this? Would it be better, would it be naturally better for you to have an 823rd breath and not stop at 822? That could happen just in the next little while. You're like, well, couldn't you have made it like in the millions? But no, I want you to feel the, the pressure here. And then the question is, does he owe it to you? And if you're, if you, if you're accustomed to receiving good gifts, you, we can tend to sort of take on a mentality of entitlement. Even with regard to moral, with regard, is God obligated to make my will, to make my will as good as it can possibly be? That's a different... Now, that one gets a little bit more like, because I could die and still go to be with him forever in heaven, but I, I, I can't, but the loss of goodwill, the absence of goodwill, that's going to result in my ultimate condemnation. Is he free to withhold that from me and so condemn me forever? Oh, this, have we put the, put, the, put the fine point on the question yet? Because I think this is the fine point. With regard to that, let's, let's go... Let's go to uh, Romans chapter 9, and we'll just take this as a kind of final consideration for this hour, um, Romans chapter 9. We can start to address this question. Um, first, all things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. In Him we live, move, and have our being. From Him we receive life, breath, and all things. Okay? Uh, also, uh, God choose, loves Jacob and hates Esau before they have done good or evil. We're told that explicitly, before they have done good or evil. So it's not, it's, it's not according to justice, it's just according to good pleasure. You get what I'm after? Like, J- Jacob wasn't loved as an act of divine justice. I want to be careful here, but good theologians support this. Nor was Esau hated in the context as retribution for his evil actions. In other words, this is, that's somewhere down the line, the question of justice. This is the question of divine freedom. Does he not have the right to do with what he wants with what is his own? Is he obliged to give every person the best personal possible end? Do you know what I'm after? Just because they are persons? Um, and then that's exactly why verse 14 raises the question. What shall we say then? Because that's like every, at this point, like if you're just running this out there to an audience who's never thought about this, immediately it's just, if it's students in a classroom, <laughs> like, don't we have to do, aren't, don't we have to, necessity, do things? For, you know, don't I have obligate? you do have obligations to others. You do. You have natural obligations to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And then with regard to the lower creatures, you have other obligations to steward well the gifts and resources He's given to you. Your life is so many obligations, so many natural necessities that compel you to do certain things vis-a-vis others. But God's relationship to the world isn't like that. I mean, this is, where, this is, the, this is why it's so hard to sort of get our headspace into some other... But God isn't just a thing in the world who has to 
honor others. You get what I'm after? That has to treat them as equals or as superiors. We treat each other as equals. We treat God as a superior. And then those things that are inferior to us, we treat them with care because they aren't really ours. Whatever is under the heavens is His. And so isn't God obligated similarly toward creatures the way that we are? What shall we say? Is there injustice? And then he, he, lets the, he lets the question go. He says, there's no injustice. Then, for he says to Moses, verse 15, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So if someone wills good and runs well, thanks be to God, he gave them the will and the movement to so run. Verse 17, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So he has a purpose with Pharaoh. The purpose with Pharaoh is the proclamation of the glory of his name. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires. He's already said that in the previous verse, and now he adds something to it, and he hardens whom he desires. And it's not just one or two verses in the Bible. There are multiple verses saying that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and also multiple verses saying that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And it's not just Pharaoh, by the way. It's, it's, it's actually several different places in the Old and New Testament where people harden their hearts and God is said to harden their hearts. This is concurrence again. Um, you will say to me then, verse 19, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Now, at this point, um, the question of fairness and rights has come in. Don't I have certain rights over against my maker? that if he made me, he's then obliga- obligated to give, and then you fill in the blanks, A, B, and C to me? Like what exactly? You know, and then you could say, well, like what, for instance? Well, like once he gives me life, doesn't he have to keep giving me life? No. no. Once he gives me movement, doesn't he have to keep giving me movement? I mean, once you get started, aren't you then obligated? Mm-hmm. With regard to God, arguably no. Once you give me being, aren't you obligated to continue making me be? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. That's the whole point. Not necessarily. So then where are you going to leverage these, the rights? No fair. You will say to me, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Now, this is, you, I mean, you know, the, you know the response. Who are you, a man, who, say, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me right like this? And then it, and then it introduces this whole question of rights. But since you raised the question of obligations and rights. Let's talk about that for a minute. Verse 21. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay? Let's talk about God's rights. Uh, To make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable or common use. Uh, In other words, God can make from one lump something that results in an honorable outcome, and from the same lump, he can produce something that ends in a dishonorable way as long as both are to his own glory then he's free, back to the parable, he's free to do what he wants with what is his own. Like that's the, so the question of rights. I think the other, and I want to back up, back, kind of back into this. Well, I'll, st- I'll finish this text and then do that. For what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and power uh, and make his wrath and power known, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. These are persons, hearts finally hardened who are ultimately destroyed and their destruction manifests his holiness and righteousness, and also to make the riches of His uh, glory known upon the vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. Go back to the question for a moment. 
The question is asked impudently, how does God still find fault? But can I, can I stop the waggy finger thing for a second and say, is this not, and I'm, I'm going to be, try to be very cautious here, but is this not a challenge nevertheless? So God incited David to number the people. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it would seem like David and Pharaoh should be off the hook because there's at least reasonable doubt now that we've got God involved to say that their will is culpable in this case. And this is, and I, there's something about this, in terms of a human court of law, this is, this is what we do. We take, a, we take a, an instance where somebody is, somebody's driving a car and crosses the double yellow line into oncoming traffic and kills a fellow motorist. Got it? No question as to the facts of what in fact transpired. Uh, is that, um, is he going to get charged with murder one, two, or three? He, yeah, if you went to his apartment and found a manifesto of world-loathing rage where he says, today is the day I go out and kill the first fellow motorist that I cross coming over the double yellow, and then goes out and does exactly that, they're not going to charge him with manslaughter, right? They're going to charge him with willful intent of murder by, ve by vehicle, same scenario at the physiological level, same car goes over, same man behind the wheel, same motor skills by which this unfortunate event takes place, but in this case, uh, I don't know, do you remember when people used to do, you know, use CDs in their car? And um, I have a CD in my car, I have an older car, so I still listen to a CD. And then your CD would drop. Oh. And then you're doing this as you drive, a, now it's all texting, but I'm just using an older illustration. Uh, you're looking for your CD, down there on the floor somewhere. You know it's down there, and you're, you're really supposed to be doing what? Driving your car, you know? Um, better left unread than dead. You know, you see these, like, just, just drive your car. Do you ever feel this way about your fellow motorists? I'm out here, and you're driving something that could kill me. Just, just, do, just look out the window. Not at this or the floor or whatever. And you cross the double yellow in the same event. Kills, by the way, this time it's painless. It like instantly kills the other guy. He just hardly even saw it coming. I'm trying to make it a little easier here. Uh, murder? Negligence? Involuntary? Did he want to kill anyone? No, but he failed to want to preserve life as effectively as he should have. No, you know what I'm after? Like, so this is not wanting to kill anyone. This is just not wanting to help them stay alive as carefully as I should want to if that's a way to say it. Uh, and so in this case, uh, you could say, well, there are mitigating circumstances that reduce it, but there's still will involved. You chose to feel around on the floor or read your text when you should have been driving, and so this unfortunate result happens, but you didn't want the unfortunate result. You just didn't not want it enough to drive better. You're still going to lose your license. You might even do jail time as just a, a public nuisance and risk, at least, et cetera. Uh, next scenario, two other ones just briefly. Uh, you're, su you're suddenly in the throes of an ep epileptic seizure when you have no medical reason to think you're susceptible to an epileptic seizure. And for the first time in your life, suddenly you're in the grips of one and you slump over your wheel. You go across the double yellow and you kill the guy coming the other way. Murder? No. 
negligence even? Because you don't know that you're actually even susceptible to this condition? No. Um, you might have to get a like, little mark on your license just to say, you know, under medication and doctor supervision, et cetera, but you're not going to get in any kind of moral uh, trouble as a result of that. Um, here's what we're trying to do in all of these cases as we adjudicate this. We're trying, to, we're trying to figure out whether other natural causes are a better explanation for this, for this bad result or whether the will is the best. In other words, were you willing what you wanted? Then it gets, and the other scenario is like the guy in the other lane runs into you and pushes you over the line and you didn't want it at all and you're fighting it but can't help it and you're still not going to get charged. What are we looking for? We're looking for bad will. Where is murder? Murder is, it's not in the event of the killing. The murder is in, the, is in, the, is in your heart. It's in the, it's in the misanthropy, the, the hatred of your fellow man when you owe him love that is, in fact, where the, the evil is. How does a court of law isolate that causal factor? By ruling out other plausible explanations for your actions for which your will would not be the best explanation of your action. Does that make sense? This is what you're looking for. Where it gets really complicated is, what if, all right, what if, in a fit of world-loathing rage with your manifesto all written up about how you're going to do exactly what then you go out and do, let's imagine that you go out there and in the very instant in which you are just on the cusp of committing this dastardly crime, uh, you drop your CD, you, have an, you, start to, you start to feel for it, you have an epileptic seizure, and the guy next to you runs into you and drives you across the line. Is this sufficiently complicated in everyone's mind? So to know whether he's guilty of vehicular murder, you're going to have to be able to isolate his will from potential other natural causes of the action. And you, you might not be able to, in which case, the, and by the way, and I should put this, you're like, well, you still got the manifesto, but the cat uh, knocked it into the fireplace and so it's gone. There. <laughs> So now you, don't, now you don't have that evidence that this was premeditated at all. Even though it was premeditated, is this man guilty of murder? I'm talking now before God. Yes. Can a human court of law know that beyond a reasonable doubt? No, and he's going to walk. In, in ethics, they call these Frankfurt-type examples because of an ethicist named Frankfurt who came up with all sorts of crazy examples just like this to complicate ethic questions. This is the thing, though. Um, if there's a better explanation of the event than your will, then your will is not held culpable. Do you get what I'm after? And so to the extent that something else caused it, watch this, your will is not the cause to the extent that something else is the cause. And if we can establish that those causes were there, then your will is either it mitigates its culpability or it relieves it entirely. But this is, the, this is part of the problem with this question. How then does he still find fault? for who resists his will. And it's actually treating God's will as if it's a, watch this, a competing cause with other causes in the world. So that it's, it's operating on this competitive model where either, it's the either-or model. This is the problem with deism and pantheism. Either God or a creature, either epileptic seizure or active bad will, or negligence or active bad will, and then watch it, or God, or bad will, or God, or goodwill. Let's just take your virtues. Do you ever will good things? Yeah. 
Uh, are you, is that praiseworthy? Yeah, we should. Um, do we say, when someone praises you for the good, do you say, thanks be to God? And they're like, oh, don't, for, don't, no, it's not God who did it, you did it. And you say, no, I only did it in, with, and through him. There's a certain sense in which we don't think of God's operation as competing and displacing our operation. It places our operation. The reason that we can't, and I'm, and I'm not saying I comprehend this. I'm sure I don't. But, the, but one reason why we can't blame God is because God is not competing for causal explanatory space so that it's either you or God. Do you get what I'm after? Or some natural causal event, or God. God's the cause of the causes. Now, when there's bad will, how is God the cause of it? Not by authoring it, but I think Norton says it, suspensively withholding the good. So how does he harden Pharaoh's heart? Let my people go. How does he harden Pharaoh's heart? I think Aquinas is right on this. Not by inserting malice, but rather by not affording good. And then the question is, is he obligated to afford the good that he demands? Have I pushed us to the brink of... And I think in light of Romans 9 and some other texts, but this one maybe most explicitly, I, I think it's a hard thing to say, to stomp your foot and say, yes, he is. But, but, it also, but it also brings us to the end of ourselves. There's a little bit of that, who are you, O man? The thing molded will not say to its maker. There's a certain point at which putting all this in the human court of judgment has to know, there has to be a sense of which... I know why this is not the same as that. I know why how I establish... Here's what establishes your moral culpability. Did you will what you wanted? And if what you wanted was evil or good willed evilly, if that's what you wanted, then you're morally culpable. The other circumstances notwithstanding, God doesn't need to, in a certain sense, parcel out whether it was this or that. All he needs to know is your heart to establish your moral culpability. So in other words, the Frankfurt-type examples of, well, what if, all th- what if all the conditions obtained at once? Humanly speaking, we would have no ability to say who's at fault, and we would have no reason to indict the man morally, even if he was indictable in the court of God. Would God have that trouble? No, because God doesn't have to isolate the will from other causes. He knows the will's good and the will's lack of good immediately and perfectly. Uh, So how does he still find fault? Because everyone who sins does exactly what he or she wants. And that's what constitutes its moral culpability. The ability for me to know what you want is complicated. Does that that make sense? And it wouldn't be fair if there were other plausible explanations of your action that could possibly be the reason as opposed to your will for the action that you committed. But with regard to God, uh, even that case of the epileptic seizure, the negligence, and the fit of world-loathing rage all coming together in one single moment, um, God isn't bamboozled by that event. So I think there's a little bit of this. You're treating God's causality like it's either God or the world. And that either-or cosmology, and this is where I'll kind of end with it, that either-or cosmology is, and I'm going to say it this way just to make it, there's something fundamentally pagan in that way of thinking. And what I mean by that is that, that that's assuming that God interacts with the world the way that the gods of the nations interact with the world, which is as sharers of causal explanatory space. So either it is Baal who gave you the reins, or you get what I'm after? This kind of Baal or Baal or the Asherim or, the Ver- or, or Dagon or the various gods of the nations, or if you want to go to the Greeks and the Romans, uh, Jupiter, Zeus, these are 
these are gods who, in a certain sense, inhabit the same order of being with others who have to compete back and forth to place, in other words, if they want to place a causal action, they have to place it by displacing someone else's causal action. You get what I'm after? So that if Zeus makes you do it, you are off the hook. Because Zeus would displace you, or the demon would displace you. But if God brings it about, he doesn't do it by displacement because he's not competing for causal explanatory space. He's causing causes to cause. Uh, does, this, does this make sense? So in this sense, the whole cosmology that makes this problem a problem is in some ways thinking of God more like the gods of the nations than the creator of all, than the creator of all. And in fact, that's the context that Paul goes to. He has rights that the gods of the nations don't have. You can talk about evil gods of the nations who do bad things, who have to respect the rights of others because they're not the cause of all, and so they don't have the rights and the prerogatives that the cause of all does. Um, I'll leave it there. Did I say at the beginning that I might cause more questions? Like, I wasn't, like, I didn't make your, your, I didn't answer your questions. Maybe I answered, like, three and created ten. So possibly that's the case. Can I pray, close this section, and then we'll roll to a Q&A? Our God, your ways are not our, thought, our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. Indeed, they're higher than the earth. What can we know? Deeper than shale, what can we know, O oh God? But we do confess that you are good, and true, and just, and that you indeed do right. There is indeed no injustice with you. May it never be. Lord, we pray that you would give us a real humility as we contemplate your providence and our utter dependence upon you. Lord, we do thank you. We do thank you that... You have commanded us to love you, and you have given us the love you have commanded, and you gave us that love not by natural necessity, but by free grace. We bless you. We thank you for that form of goodwill, the the love that you placed in our hearts, the heart of flesh that replaced the heart of stone. Lord, you were under no obligation to do this for us, and yet you did it freely so that we might know you and enjoy you and tell your glory. Help us to do just that thing, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.